Hey listeners, we'll get to unpacking Israeli history in just a second, but this is producer Rifki Stern jumping in for a moment to ask you for a favor. We want to hear from you directly. Who are you? What do you like? What do you hate? What shows don't exist in the world that you wish were out there? Tell us everything. Fill out our two-minute survey. Seriously, two minutes. The more detailed, the better, but we'll take anything. You can find the survey in the show notes of this episode or at this easy website, jewishunpack.com slash UIH survey, UIH being Unpacking Israeli History. I'll say it one more time, jewishunpack.com slash UIH survey. Okay, on to the show. Hey, I'm Noam Weissman, and you're listening to Unpacking Israeli History, the podcast that takes a deep dive into some of the most intense historically fascinating, and often misunderstood events and stories linked to Israeli history. This season of Unpacking Israeli History is generously sponsored by Marcy and Andrew Spitzer and Barbara Summer and Alan Fisher. And this episode is generously sponsored by the Center for Advancement of Jewish Education and the Jewish Federation of Northern New Jersey. Before we start, have you shared Unpacking Israeli History with everyone you know? posted it on Facebook, LinkedIn, MySpace. Okay, you don't have to do that one. But for real, the best way to share our message of a nuanced and wonderful Israeli history is by sharing it with your friends and family. And I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention that we finally, finally have Unpacking Israeli History merch. So if you want a Yalla Let's Do This mug or shirt, you finally have the chance. Just head to shop jewishunpack.com Okay, yalla, let's do this. We, the people of Israel, are prepared and anxious to meet the representatives of our neighbors without any preconditions. There are people in Israel and elsewhere say it's impossible to make peace between the Arabs and Israel or the Jewish people. I think they're wrong. Like many of my fellow elder millennials, and yes, my creaky knees stiff back and I resent that term, I'm still in denial about the fact that we're 30 years out from the greatest era in world history, i.e. a world in which Kurt Cobain and Tupac ruled, i.e. the 90s. Okay, as this podcast is about to demonstrate, maybe these years were not necessarily the greatest, but I definitely think back on that decade with nostalgia. Shout out to all the 90s kids out there who remember playing Mario Kart on a console you had to blow into, blockbuster movie nights, and kids bringing in their gas masks for kindergarten show and tell? Oh, that last part wasn't part of your 90s experience? Technically, it should not have been part of mine. Baltimore gets a bad rap for its homicide rate, but as far as I know, no one's stocking up on gas masks. But in the spring of 1991, my kindergarten class got a new classmate, Uri, who had just moved to Baltimore from Israel. And his show and tell blew the rest of ours right out of the water. 20 kindergartners sat crisscross applesauce on the ABC's rug in the center of the room, watching wide-eyed as Uri and his mother presented a strange and menacing object. It was shiny and black with huge reflective eyes and a protruding snout that ended in a sealed cap. Its straps dangled uselessly 
as Uri's mom held this thing aloft, and Uri explained with a child's heartbreaking matter-of-factness that this was his gas mask. Five-year-olds might not know words like chemical warfare, but Uri gave us a brief, developmentally appropriate summary of the mask's purpose, which in my memory, yes, I have a bizarre memory, went something like this. The mask helped protect us when bad people wanted to hurt us. When we heard the sirens, we would go into our mamad with our masks on and sit there until it was time to come out again. I don't fully remember how five-year-old Noam reacted to the gas mask or to the idea that bad people wanted to hurt my new friend. I don't remember asking why a gas mask existed or how it helped keep the bad guys away. And I definitely didn't know that Mamad or Merchav Mugandirati referred to a room made of reinforced concrete with a heavy metal door where Israelis seek shelter from rockets and missiles. I didn't know that Israeli law mandates that every house built after 1992 includes a Mamad. I'd wager that, and I do not think that I'm exaggerating, as of 2022, there is not a single Israeli in the country that has not fled to a Mamad at least once. But 36-year-old Noam has seen the footage, heard the speeches, read the books, the articles, tried to understand the geopolitical train wreck that made five-year-olds all over Israel believe that gas masks and bomb shelters were just a normal part of life. And 36-year-old Noam remains incredibly thankful for the choices that the Israeli government made during that terrible time. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The 1991 Gulf War and its enduring geopolitical legacy. You might not have expected a war between Iraq and Kuwait to affect ordinary Israelis, test the U.S.-Israel relationship, and even challenge the long-held Zionist ethos. And pay close attention to that because we're going to come back to it. But that is exactly what happened. And that is exactly why this podcast exists. To unpack the numerous, sometimes complicated, always fascinating connections between seemingly random events. Because though it has since been eclipsed by its bloody sequel, the first Gulf War of 1991 was incredibly influential for the entire Middle East. And to understand the impact of Milchemet Hamifratz, as Israelis call the war, we have to rewind to 1979, when a certain Iraqi dictator tried his very best to upend the delicate balance of power in the Middle East. Saddam Hussein had already enjoyed a long and bloody career by the time he officially became Iraq's president, prime minister, and chairman of Iraq's Revolutionary Command Council in 1979. Saddam's rise to the top was littered with bodies. Because if you can't force your people to love you, you do the next best thing. You make them fear you. And as a Sunni ruling majority Shia country, Saddam took this philosophy to heart, embarking on a systematic campaign to persecute and oppress the country's Shia majority. And his first move as head of state? Wresting the Persian Gulf from his Shia neighbor to the east. Iraq and Iran had been sniping at each other for decades, and Saddam was hungry for a piece of Iran's oil fields, natural gas reserves, and access to the Persian Gulf. But getting rich off stolen resources was merely step one of his plan to replace Egypt as the de facto leader of the Arab world. So Saddam was watching with great interest as the Iranian government crumbled and Islamic cleric Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini turned the once vibrant country into a repressive theocracy. Nerd corner alert. 
Before the Islamic Revolution in 1979, Israel and Iran enjoyed a warm relationship. Here's a snippet from an Israeli documentary called Before the Revolution about life in Iran pre-1979. As Israelis in Tehran, we lived like millionaires. And the cooperation with Iran was tremendous. Iran bought a lot of weapons from Israel. Really makes you think about what could have been. But Iran had bigger issues on its mind than Israel, like its grabby neighbor to the West. Seizing his chance to get his hands on Iranian resources, Saddam invaded in September of 1980, setting off a bloody, protracted war that would last eight years, cost $1 trillion, and claim between one and two million lives. By the time a ceasefire was declared in 1988, neither country's border had moved an inch. To finance his failed war, Saddam had borrowed billions from neighboring oil-rich states like Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. But when tiny little Kuwait refused to cancel Saddam's debt, which yes, he had the chutzpah to demand, he did what all sane, rational folks do. Threaten, insult, and eventually invade. On August 2, 1990, Iraqi tanks rolled into Kuwait. And within a matter of days, Saddam had driven the royal family into exile in Saudi Arabia, installed a puppet government, and declared Kuwait a province of Iraq. Hundreds of thousands of people became refugees, and the ones who remained may have had it even worse. I'm not going to get too graphic here, but let's just say that Saddam really earned his reputation as a violent monster. Not going to get into it all, but check out the show notes if you want to learn more. The world was horrified and had no intention of letting Saddam continue to abuse Kuwait. And when I say the world, I'm only sort of exaggerating, because Saddam who had previously enjoyed American and Saudi support during the Iran-Iraq war, was suddenly very unpopular internationally. Here's the first President Bush addressing Congress after the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. Our objectives in the Persian Gulf are clear. Our goals defined and familiar. Iraq must withdraw from Kuwait completely, immediately, and without condition. This is not, as Saddam Hussein would have it, the United States against Iraq. It is Iraq against the world. And as you know, I've just returned from a, a very productive meeting with Soviet President Gorbachev. And I am pleased that we are working together to build a new relationship. In Helsinki, our joint statement affirm to the world our shared resolve to counter Iraq's threat to peace. True, the U.S. and USSR had met in tiny, beautiful Malta the year before to declare that the Cold War was finally over. Nerd corner, historians still debate whether that 1989 summit was actually the end of the Cold War. Regardless, Seeing the two nations working together was a pretty, pretty, pretty big deal for Americans who had spent decades afraid of their nuclear communist rival. Unfortunately, even the world's superpowers had little effect on Saddam's expansionist ambitions. And despite Iraq's ruined economy, six months' worth of international sanctions and embargoes failed to rout Saddam's forces from Kuwait. So the U.S., backed by a whopping 34 countries, turned to Plan B, bombing the hell out of Iraq. Even Arab states who had once supported Saddam now agreed. 
the mustachioed maniac from Iraq could no longer be allowed to further destabilize the Middle East. Because if Saddam was allowed to continue running roughshod over his neighbors, Saudi Arabia would be next. And that would put Saddam in control of nearly half of the world's oil. To quote Saudi Arabia's king verbatim, hell no. Seriously, direct quote. So as the US, Saudi Arabia, the UK, Egypt, and 30 other countries got together to give Saddam a little taste of his own medicine, Saddam did something a little unexpected. He threatened Israel. Say what you will about Saddam Hussein, but when he committed to something, he went all in. So not a single person doubted that he'd make good on his threat to turn Israel into, and I quote, a crematorium. Lovely, Saddam. You really do have such a way with words. For obvious reasons, Israel takes genocidal threats pretty seriously, and Saddam unfortunately already had a track record. He'd been systematically exterminating Iraq's Kurdish population for years, using both conventional and chemical weapons, and it was strongly suspected that he had some nasty bioweapons in his arsenal, like botulinum and anthrax. Honestly, I'm not 100% sure what either of those do to the human body, but I'm pretty sure it's not good. But why threaten Israel, which had nothing to do with this conflict? It had no oil. It hadn't lent Saddam money. It had no relationship to Kuwait. It wasn't even a part of the U.S.-led coalition that had just attacked Iraq. Well, as usual, when it comes to Middle Eastern history, the answer is complicated. Hey there, taking a small break to tell you about another podcast I love, Israel Story. As we talk about here, Israel is a tough topic to tackle. Some people love it, others, unfortunately, hate it. But Israel Story tells it as it is, beautiful and ugly, ridiculous and heartwarming. Israel Story is a radio show and podcast that brings us nuanced, we love that word, complicated and beautifully crafted stories from a place we all think we know a lot about, but really don't. If you are looking for the best audio storytelling around, not just from the Middle East, but from anywhere, this is the show for you. Hosted by Mishi Harman and produced in partnership with the Jerusalem Foundation, Israel Story tells extraordinary stories about ordinary people. Tales you won't see or hear anywhere else. According to none other than Ira Glass himself, Israel Story is the This American Life of Israel. It's the most popular Jewish podcast in the world, and it regularly takes listeners from 194 countries on unforgettable, quirky, interesting, and moving journeys throughout the country. Subscribe, listen, and enjoy Israel's story today. First, let's get the obvious motivation out of the way. Good old-fashioned Jew hatred. Anti-Semitism, both in its OG form and its new disguise of anti-Zionism, were nothing new in Iraq. In 1941, pro-fascist, anti-British forces overthrew the Iraqi government, cozied up to Axis powers, and effectively ended 2,600 years of vibrant Jewish life with the Farhud riot. That's our next episode. Brace yourselves. And then Iraq refused to recognize Israel, sending troops to attack the Jewish state in 1948, 1967, and 
1973. I'd imagine Iraqi leaders' frustration only grew every time they lost a war against Israel. I admit it, I'm not above finding this extremely satisfying. Next, we've got Saddam's Bruce Pride. See, Israel had destroyed Iraq's nuclear reactor at Osirak a decade earlier, back in 1981. But no spoilers, consider this a teaser for our last episode of the season. And when you're a brutal dictator with designs on ruling the entire Middle East, it's gotta hurt when a Jewish country, a 20th of your size, the cute little nebbish Jewish people, just destroys your one chance at nuclear domination. Finally, Saddam had a third and more immediate reason for attacking Israel. As a pan-Arabist, he really hated that there were Arab states in the US-led coalition against him. So he thought maybe by bombing Israel, he could goad the country into joining the war. Once Israel did that, the Arab states in the coalition had two options, one far-fetched and one highly likely. So first, the pipe dream option. Once Israel joined the war, the coalition's Arab nations would switch sides and join Iraq because they wouldn't be caught dead fighting on the same side as Israel. Side note, my nine-year-old is more mature than this. And the far likelier option? The moment Israel joined the fight against Iraq, all the Arab states would be forced to pull out of the US-backed coalition. Just stay on the sidelines. And since Saudi Arabia and Egypt were the second and fourth biggest backers of the coalition, their exit would be a huge coup for Saddam. Even full-blown lunatics have an occasional moment of political savvy. And just to add, this wasn't the first time Saddam had invoked Israel during his invasion of Kuwait. In the words of Israeli historian Avi Shleim, it was Saddam Hussein himself who, 10 days after the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990, created the link between Israel and Iraq by suggesting that Iraq would withdraw from Kuwait if Israel withdrew from all occupied Arab territories. That was the mother of all linkages. Now, a guy who invades two of his neighbors, wipes out thousands of Kurdish villages with chemical bombs, and terrorizes his own people, isn't motivated by the kindness of his heart. So no one truly believes that Saddam invaded Kuwait to prove a point to the wider world and to win a home for the Palestinians, and to think he would have pulled out of Kuwait if Israel pulled out of the West Bank and Gaza is frankly laughable. As a 1991 Washington Post article puts it, what began as an act of naked aggression toward Kuwait has been transformed in the culminant act of the drama of his life. Although he had previously shown little concern for the Palestinian people, the shrewdly manipulative Saddam wrapped himself and his rape of Kuwait in the Palestinian flag. But regardless of his motivations, Saddam became somewhat of a hero among Palestinians and crucially to their leadership. Because guess who pointedly did not join the coalition against Saddam, essentially choosing instead to support him? This podcast's old frenemy, Yasser Arafat, chairman of the PLO. It might seem strange and unwise for Arafat and the PLO to back Saddam, especially because half of Kuwait's 400,000 Palestinians fled the Iraqi invasion, terrified of persecution. And as we mentioned above, Saddam wasn't really a warm and fuzzy guy. But according to Palestinian-American historian Rashid Khalidi, the PLO opposed the Iraq invasion of Kuwait, but was unwilling to endorse a major United States military presence in the heart of the Arab world. For the Palestinians, occupation and annexation of Kuwait is a great evil, but a massive American military presence in the region is an even greater evil. 
kind of a the enemy of my enemies, my friend sort of thing. But what about the other Arab states of the coalition? Why was the PLO so willing to break with them? Well, the Palestinians justifiably, in my opinion, essentially felt left behind by their fellow Arabs. The rich Gulf states seemed more interested in cozying up to the West than advancing the Palestinian cause. Meanwhile, so-called moderate states like Egypt, who enjoyed a chilly diplomatic relationship with Israel, had proven unable to promote the Palestinian cause or even change Israeli and American policy toward the PLO. So Arafat gambled that Saddam's brash, take-no-prisoners approach would shock the Arab world out of its complacency and into supporting the Palestinian cause. Because to the Palestinians, what did it matter if Saddam sincerely cared about the Palestinian people or if he was cynically using them as a political pawn? He seemed like the only person willing to confront the West to actually act on his threats against Israel. As we'll see shortly, Arafat's strategy backfired royally. And yet much of the Palestinian community remembers Saddam fondly. Listen to some of the responses from this 2019 street poll. What do you think of Saddam Hussein? He's the chief of the Arabs and he was the best leader and the strongest leader of the Arab leaders. Saddam Hussein is a great man. He's the man of the nation, Arab nation. He has been killed and everything we lost. He was one of the strongest uh, leaders, Arab leaders who were with the Palestinian cause. Had he not been so with us and so for the Palestinian cause, then the world would not have turned against him. Oh, do you think that's the reason that the U.S. went against Iraq? It's because of the Palestinian cause? Yeah. That's part of the reason, but also because Iraq was, was self-sufficient. It didn't need external aid. So Palestinians weren't too fussed about Saddam's threat to attack Israel. But as Saddam's bluster grew increasingly genocidal, Israelis grew understandably panicked. Through the end of 1990 and into 1991, the Israeli government distributed gas masks, just like the one Uri and his mom showed my class. And to go along with the masks, they also distributed auto-ejectors filled with atropine, an antidote to certain types of nerve agents. I want you to think about that for a second. Imagine putting your life on hold for an afternoon because you need to get a properly fitted gas mask. Imagine having to explain to your kids, if you have them, that you might need to give them a shot so they don't die from a chemical attack. Imagine how a nation full of Holocaust survivors felt as yet another mustachioed dictator threatened them with poison gas. Imagine hearing this announcement booming from your radio, as Israelis often did in the early weeks of 1991. This is not a false alarm. There has been a missile attack on Israel. All citizens of Israel must put on their gas masks and enter a sealed room. Check that your children have put their masks on correctly and continue to listen to our instructions. This is not a false alarm. From the moment Saddam had invaded Kuwait in August of 1990, he had made himself at home. And as he plundered the country and blustered about his power, the United States and Saudi Arabia began quietly massing their troops. In fact, this was the American military's largest overseas deployment 
since World War II. Because though the UN Security Council had given Saddam until January 15, 1991 to get the heck out of Kuwait or be forcibly removed, no one really expected him to listen. Surprise, surprise, he blew past his deadline, and at 3 a.m. Iraqi time, on January 17, 1991, the U.S.-led coalition attacked the Iraqi Air Force. In response, Saddam fired his first eight Scud missiles at Tel Aviv. And by the end of the war on February 25, 1991, he would fire another 31 Scuds at Israel. The world watched as Iraqi Scuds rained down on Israeli cities, designed to strike as many civilians as possible. And at home, Israelis waited in their mamadim, their sealed bomb shelters, for their government's response, growing increasingly frustrated. Was this the Zionist dream? Sitting passively in a bomb shelter, waiting for the next missile as the government in Jerusalem sat on its hands? Was this the country that Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir had given his youth trying to defend? Wasn't the whole point of Zionism to be a safe haven? Wasn't the whole point of Zionism to allow Jews to stand up for themselves? To make the whole world think twice about using the Jews as punching bags or political pawns? So why did Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir allow this? And how did the Israeli public respond? For starters, I want to be very clear. No one had expected the Prime Minister to show this kind of restraint. Not even the Prime Minister himself. Like so many of Israel's Prime Ministers, Shamir rose to power after a storied military career. His 2012 obituary in the New York Times described him as an unyielding leader whose victory came not from compromise, but from strength. Even his last name, which he chose himself after arriving in Palestine in 1936 at the age of 20, translated to thorn or sharp point, which was all too fitting considering his past military posts. Because if the young Shamir was passionate about one thing, it was this, getting the British the heck out of Mandate Palestine by any means necessary. So he became a high-level commander in the Lehi, the smallest, fringiest, and most hardline of Israel's pre-state power militaries. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, listen to our Black Saturday episode. There's a reason I keep talking about it in almost every episode this season. It's so important to understanding Israeli history. After the establishment of the state and the dissolution of Lehi, Shamir spent almost 20 years as a Mossad agent abroad. And if you want to know more about the kind of wild stuff the Mossad gets up to, listen to the fourth episode of this season. I'm telling you this because I want you to really understand that Shamir had dedicated his entire life to creating and then defending an independent Jewish state at any cost. He wasn't shy about using force. The New York Times described his brand of Zionism as muscular. And yet, at the most crucial moment, as his cities were shelled by Iraqi missiles, his citizens cowering in bomb shelters, Shamir chose to fly in the face of his own instinct. As historian Avi Shlaim puts it, Israel's entire military doctrine is geared to seizing the initiative and going on the offensive. All of these tenets were violated by Israel's passivity during the Gulf War. In fact, Israel's traditional military doctrine was stood on its head. Israelis were baffled. Even prominent members of the left clamored for a military response. Israeli literary critic and scholar Don Miron published a searing article in Haaretz titled, If There's an IDF, Let It Appear, a 
pointed and obvious reference to the In the City of Slaughter, Chaim Nachman Bialik's iconic poem about the Kishinev pogrom, which you all know about because you listened to the Kishinev episode on this podcast. Don't worry, for a refresher, see the link in the show notes. The whole point of Israel's existence, well, one of the points, was to prevent another city of slaughter. But now Iraqi missiles rained on Tel Aviv. Saddam Hussein bragged, I will burn half of Israel. And still, still, Shamir's government remained cagey about the prospect of Israeli retaliation. Here's Zalman Shoval, the Israeli ambassador to the U.S., describing Israel's position. Israel has never ruled out the possibility of making a response to the attacks uh, on her. But I would say that any decision the Israeli government may or may not take will not necessarily have the character of retribution. It's not a matter of an eye for an eye, it's the matter of how to act in the best way in order to defend our population and in order to prevent further attacks in the future. Adding fuel to the fire was the Palestinian response to Iraq's attacks. Though the scuds fell indiscriminately from January 18th to February 24th, threatening Jew and Arab alike, many Palestinians openly celebrated the pummeling of Israeli cities, an outrage that Israelis never really forgave. Imagine it, over a month of sitting in a bomb shelter, of watching your neighbors dance on their rooftops for a news camera, not even ashamed of celebrating your humiliation and fear, not knowing whether the next scud will be the one carrying a payload of chemical weapons, not knowing whether your government will finally respond or not. How many scuds would have to fall in Israel before the government declared enough? And truth be told, Shamir was asking that very question because the prime minister was not sitting passively. A Times of Israel article reports that as soon as the first scuds fell on January 18th, Defense Minister Moshe Arenz called up Dick Cheney and informed him of an imminent Israeli attack on Iraq. The IDF even picked out targets, including Saddam's palace and Iraqi army headquarters. The Israelis went so far as to prepare for the mission. Here's reporter Amir Oren speaking in 2019. Benny Gantz, who is now a candidate for the uh, Israeli elections, at that time was a lieutenant colonel in charge of an Air Force commando unit. He was um, aboard a helicopter on his way uh, to take off from an Israeli airbase and uh, uh, land in Iraq when uh, the uh, abort order uh, came. But why? Why abort? Israeli military doctrine demanded a strong reaction. Was tiny vulnerable Israel setting a dangerous precedent with its lack of action? Shamir grappled with those questions. In his 1994 autobiography, he reflects, there was not one day on which I could be certain that our non-participation would not in the end extract an even higher price from us than that which we were already paying. So many double negatives there, but you get the point. Yet Shamir put aside his anxieties. And despite what author Gordon Zaks describes as the Israeli prime minister's bad chemistry with President Bush, the two men worked closely together. Bush, of course, was anxious to ensure the stability of his coalition, and Shamir was a pragmatist. Zaks described that Shamir knew that if he attacked, the coalition would fall apart. 
and they would not be able to defeat Saddam. So he did not react. As scuds fell, Shamir and Israel exercised restraint. Not that it was easy. Shamir reflected that I can think of nothing that went more against my grain as a Jew and as a Zionist. This was one of the hardest tasks I ever imposed upon myself. But Shamir did not choose restraint solely for Bush's benefit. For one, there were limits to what Israel would accept. Had Iraq used chemical weapons, Israel certainly would have retaliated. Thankfully, that scenario never came to pass. But Shamir was also motivated by a certain amount of self-interest. As celebrated Israeli diplomat Abba Iban points out, the truth is that we had no capacity to avenge our few tragic deaths without incurring losses of human life far greater than any that we had suffered. Because somehow, the Israeli death toll remained miraculously low. The exact stats differ depending on the outlet, but everyone agrees that fewer than five Israelis died as a direct result of the attacks. The missiles caused a handful of serious injuries, as well as a number of indirectly related deaths due to heart attacks, asphyxiation, or incorrect application of atropine. Secular and religious Israelis alike called it a miracle. A scientific paper in Nature even tried to determine a scientific explanation for the tiny death toll. Not that this made the winter of 91 any less terrifying for Israelis. I can only imagine my old kindergarten classmate Uri waiting patiently in his mamad in his child-sized gas mask, trying to catch some sleep. The war's effects lingered well past its official end date. The rubble could be cleared, the damaged buildings rebuilt. But the collective drama wasn't so easy to shake. Iban describes it like this. We had lost the capacity for conventional punitive reprisal. We were forced to understand that we now had an adversary that we could not reach with our major weapons. I'm taking a short break from the episode to tell you about the Digital Storytellers Lab from the Jewish Writers Initiative. Do you have an idea for a video, a podcast, or another storytelling idea that just needs to get out? Applications are open now for the Digital Storytellers Lab, an eight-month fellowship that gives digital storytellers the opportunity to kickstart the development of new narrative digital audiovisual media exploring Jewish themes. Fellows will attend in-person and virtual workshops and receive a stipend of $20,000 for their participation. This sounds awesome. For more information and to apply, visit jwinitiative.com slash digital storytellers. Applications are due soon. They're due June 1st and will be reviewed on a rolling basis. Again, go to jwinitiative.com slash digital storytellers to apply. Thankfully, the war itself did not last long. Though Iraq boasted the fifth largest army in the world, it was no match for the American-led coalition. By the end of February, six weeks after the first American-led attack, Saddam had been routed from Kuwait, leaving him isolated, angry, and forced to agree to a ceasefire. And the PLO, who had so enthusiastically and frankly stupidly supported Saddam, it too paid a price. According to Philip Matar, former executive director of the Institute for Palestine Studies, the 1990-1991 Gulf crisis resulted in one of the worst setbacks for the Palestinians in modern times. By the time the crisis ended, 
the thriving Palestinian community in Kuwait had been destroyed. Gulf financial and diplomatic backing that had sustained the PLO for two decades had been withdrawn. International endorsement for Palestinian self-determination had declined, and the Arab consensus in support of the Palestinian cause had been damaged. And if that wasn't bad enough, more than 100,000 Palestinian workers were booted from the oil-rich countries that had fought against Saddam. And as an Al Jazeera article says, the Kuwaitis had financed a massive media campaign which called Arafat a traitor for supporting Saddam. Yet again, the decisions of the Palestinian leadership had direct and unpleasant consequences for ordinary Palestinian people. Arafat was backed into a corner. Ten months later, PLO negotiators sat in on the Madrid Peace Conference, the first time that Palestinians and Israelis entered any kind of negotiations. And while Israel proved itself open to peace, both at the Madrid Conference and later in Oslo, it nonetheless remained vigilant. As I researched this episode, I couldn't help but notice that all the Israeli sources I found drew a direct link between the 1991 Gulf War and today's security situation. The Gulf War had exposed cracks in Israel's ability to defend itself, vulnerabilities that the government and the military vowed to eliminate. They revised the specs for the bomb shelters, or Mamad, that we mentioned at the top of the episode, mandating their presence in any home built after 1992. Such shelters are everywhere in Israel, public buildings, private homes, communal spaces. Most importantly, Israel no longer relies on clunky, ineffective Patriot missiles from the United States. Since 2011, it has used a mobile air defense system called the Iron Dome, which intercepts and destroys short-range rockets. True, rocket attacks from Gaza and Lebanon are still sadly common, but they do not engender the same existential terror as Saddam's barrage of 1991. The Israeli government and military have explicitly stated that the country is prepared for another Gulf War-style threat from a faraway country intent on wiping Israel off the map. We all know what country they're talking about. Because as the saying goes, Israelis are always ready for two things, barbecue and war. So that's the story of how the Gulf War reshaped the modern Middle East and put the Zionist ethos through its harshest test. Here are your five fast facts. Number one, in August of 1990, Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein invaded his southern neighbor, Kuwait. Kuwait fell quickly and the Iraqis looted, plundered and pillaged their way through the tiny country. Number two, almost everyone, including the UN Security Council, condemned the act. However, Saddam did enjoy support from the PLO, which was drawn to his fiery rhetoric and unwavering support of the Palestinian cause. Number three, Saddam refused to leave Kuwait. So in January of 1991, an American-led coalition invaded Iraq. In hopes of poking the bear and provoking an Israeli response, Saddam fired 39 Scud missiles at Israel and threatened chemical warfare. Miraculously, though Israel suffered serious property damage, few people were killed. Number four, the Americans cautioned that Israeli retaliation could jeopardize the American position. So Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir chose not to retaliate. The war ultimately neutralized one of Israel's major enemies, Iraq, without any Israeli intervention. And number five, the PLO's vociferous support of Iraq cost them. Support for the Palestinian cause cooled across the Arab and Western worlds. 
and ordinary Palestinians were swiftly booted from their homes and jobs in the Gulf states. Those are your five fast facts, but here's one enduring lesson as I see it. The Gulf War fascinates me for a number of reasons. Chief among them is the range of personalities involved. Every head of state could be a movie character. Saddam as the crazy but strategic villain, Bush as the powerful cowboy, and Shamir, whose behavior during the war defies glib categorization. How did a former Lehi commander refrain from counterattacking Iraq? Lehi, the organization that seemed to be constantly jonesing for a fight. And yet in the face of a legitimate and immediate existential threat to Israel, Shamir adopted the policy of his old rival, the Haganah, a policy that the Lehi rejected time and time again, Havlaga or restraint. But I think that actually the Gulf War was Shamir's finest hour. In the words of Pirkei Avot, chapter 4, Ezehu Gibor Hakovesh at Yitzro, who is mighty, he who subdues his natural instincts. Lao Tzu, founder of Taoism, said as much in the 6th century BCE. If you understand others, you are smart. If you understand yourself, you are illuminated. If you overcome others, you are powerful. If you overcome yourself, you have strength. I love that. And resisting a counterattack took strength. Despite his strong personal feelings about the matter, Shamir clearly understood that a show of might could easily backfire, upending the delicate balance in the Gulf and possibly even shifting the war in Saddam's favor. He was strong enough to see that despite the fiery op-eds in the paper, despite the public anger, despite the missiles, Israel would be better served by standing by. But standing by is not the same thing as being passive. It's not the same thing as being weak. Sometimes standing by is actually strategic. It's actually strength. And when he stood by, Shamir demonstrated this strength. And I personally can learn so much from Shamir, a man who overcame himself, his instincts, perhaps even his experience, and in so doing, demonstrated strength, real strength. Thank you all for listening. One last reminder, if you haven't yet, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and help us grow this podcast community by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Now it's time for our favorite segment, Israel Nerd Talk, where we highlight one of you, our amazing listeners. This week, meet Charles. Charles wrote, the Unpacking Israeli History podcast is amazing. And he wrote that in caps. These days, it's hard to talk to anyone. Either they are on one extreme side or the other. Events, people, and ideas are considered good or bad. Those are the only options. This show manages to tackle difficult and controversial topics without resorting to simple political rhetoric. The approach is consistent with our tradition of appreciating questions even more than answers. And ultimately, it helps me appreciate Israel even more. I also like how it encourages us to look beyond a single narrative. Yet, at the same time, it doesn't try to be perfectly unbiased. It maintains a Jewish perspective. The show fills an important void in that it looks at history critically and considers nuance. I'm starting from the beginning and will catch up pretty quickly. I'm also exploring your other podcasts. Thanks and keep it up. Charles, your email really struck a chord because it's almost like you reverse engineered exactly what we're trying to do. Here at Unpacked, we are proudly Jewish and we love Israel. And we believe that doesn't mean we want to build up propaganda about the Jewish state. We're trying to be intellectually honest. 
Look at all corners of the story to excavate what really happened. That is the best way to tell the real story of a strong, complicated, and amazing country. So thank you, Charles, for being on our team. And listeners, be in touch. Be like Charles. Email me at noam at jewishunpacked.com. Unpacking Israeli History is a production of Unpacked, the division of Open Door Media. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related and subscribe to our other podcasts. Follow Unpacked at all the social media places like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. And again, write to me at noam at jewishunpacked.com. I'll close this episode with a song whose title translates to Saddam, you idiot. Where other wars inspired iconic Israeli classics, the Gulf War resulted only in a mocking joke song of dubious artistic value. Which I totally get. Without an authorized strike, ordinary Israelis had just one weapon in the face of their trauma. Laughter. This episode was produced by Rizky Stern. Our team for this episode includes Adi Elbaz and Rob Perry. I'm your host, Noam Weissman. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Remember, please fill out that survey. You can find it in the show notes of this episode or at jewishunpack.com slash UIH survey.